0: Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Legends of Surgery. I'm your host, Tyler Rouse. Today, we're going to cover one of the more well-known surgeons from the just-before-anesthesia era, a Scottish-born British surgeon named Robert Liston. At that time, speed was a mercy, and Liston was considered the fastest knife in the West End, although speed sometimes got him into trouble, as we'll see. So let's start the clock on this episode of Legends of Surgery. Robert Liston was born in Ecclesmackin, Scotland on the 28th of October of 1794. His father was a Scottish minister and pipe organ inventor. His mother died when he was six, and so his father raised and taught him. Robert went to the University of Edinburgh at the age of 14 and quickly became interested in anatomy under the tutelage of famous anatomist John Barclay. He was appointed House Surgeon to the Royal Infirmary of Edinburgh in 1814 and went to London in 1816 to work at the London Hospital in St. Bartholomew's. By 1818, he had returned to Edinburgh to become a surgeon back at the Royal Infirmary after being accepted as a member of the Royal College of Surgeons in both London and Edinburgh based on his thesis entitled, Strictures of the Urethra and Some of Their Consequences. The following year, he and his cousin James Sim, who had also become a well-known surgeon, opened a school of anatomy and surgery. If you recall from previous episodes, Joseph Lister, of antisepsis fame, would wind up marrying Sim's daughter. Small world of the 19th century Scottish surgeons, I guess. Now, their collaboration only lasted until 1823, when Liston gave up teaching anatomy to Sim, and following disagreement, they separated remaining enemies for years. Anyways, Liston had his difficulties in Edinburgh due to what a few sources describe as abrasiveness and arrogance. He was dismissed in 1822 under the accusation of persuading infirmary patients to see him at his own private practice instead, but was reinstated as a surgeon in 1827, likely due to some outside pressure. Liston was thought of a bit of a showman, as we'll see later, and made enough enemies that he lost the position of professor of surgery to his former partner and nemesis, Sim, in 1833. And so he left Scotland to become the chair of clinical surgery at University College Hospital in London, 1835. Before we get into that, I want to paint a picture for you based on some of the descriptions I read. Liston stood at six foot two, quite an imposing height, especially for the time. Liston would remove his frock coat, put on a clean apron, and wash his hands before an operation. Given that a blood-stiffened frock was considered a sign of experience and competence, this was definitely a unique practice. Liston also insisted that the sponges be carefully washed and limbs shaved in preparation for amputation. As mentioned earlier, Liston was best known for his speed, which would obviously be of benefit for those being operated upon. In the age before anesthesia, the patient would have to be held down by assistance, and their struggling would make the operation that much more dangerous, as we'll see. A part of his appeal to patients besides the speed was his relative success. From 1835 to 1840, Liston performed 66 amputations with only 10 deaths, a mortality rate of 1 in 6. Other sources give him even better odds at 1 in 10. A competing hospital in the area, St. Bartholomew's, had a mortality rate of one in four. Now that might explain why patients would camp out for days in his clinic to wait their turn to see him. And Liston made a point to see every last patient regardless of their condition and took pride in treating cases that his colleagues had dismissed as beyond hope. As you may recall me mentioning, he had a reputation as a showman because of this sort of thing, and it upset some in the surgical community. One colleague that he famously quarreled with was Robert Knox, Knox was a surgeon and unindicted collaborator in the notorious Burke-Hare serial murders of 1827 and 1828 in Edinburgh. Burke and Hare were grave robbers, or resurrectionists, as we've covered before, who helped provide teaching material to the anatomy classes of the 19th century. However, these two took it a step further, and rather than collecting already dead bodies, they killed 16 people and then provided the bodies to Knox for dissection. Let's just say that it didn't end well for those two, Burke's skeleton is to this day on display at the Anatomical Museum of the Edinburgh Medical School. Anyways, one day Liston grew suspicious of Knox and with one of his students burst into Knox's labs where he found the corpse of a young woman named Mary Patterson in what was described as a lascivious pose. Liston threw Knox to the floor and retrieved the body for proper burial. So let's talk a bit more about Liston's actual surgical experiences. It was said that he could amputate a leg in two and a half minutes from first cut to final stitch, often clasping the bloody knife in his teeth to free his cutting hand to grab a saw. His catchphrase, again as part of the showman in him, was, Time me, gentlemen, at which his usual crowd of observers would take out their pocket watches. Never, despite the speed, Liston is credited with cutting flaps and amputations to cover the stump, a great improvement over the guillotine-style amputation done at the time. Clearly this was a surgeon with confidence, willing to attempt the impossible. One case described from 1823 has him removing a 45-pound scrotal tumor in four minutes. The owner had had to carry it around in a wheelbarrow. The blood loss was likened to a shower bath. The patient sunk off the table, pulseless and flaccid, but with the help of a cordial, meaning a pint of strong whiskey, poured into his stomach. He showed signs of recovery and wound up walking out of the hospital three weeks later. Not surprisingly, this confidence could get him in trouble as in the case of a child whom he saw for what Liston took for as a skin tag. The story goes that he argued about this lesion with his house surgeon, like a resident or trainee surgeon. It was described as a red, pulsating tumor in the neck of a small boy that had an audible bruit, meaning it made a murmuring sound, characteristic of abnormal blood flow. FYI, the word bruit comes from the old French word for noise. Makes sense. Now, Liston was quoted as saying, Poo! Whoever ever heard of an aneurysm in one so young? Now, following that statement, he pulled a knife from his waistcoat and lanced it. As described by the house surgeon, out leaped arterial blood, and the boy fell. The patient died, and the autopsy showed that an abscess had ulcerated into the carotid artery. Now, amazingly, this artery still exists in the Pathology Museum at the University College Hospital. It's specimen number 1256 for anyone who wants to see it. Also, check out their website and it has some amazing stories there. Now, let's talk more about some misadventures related to speed. As mentioned, Liston seems most well-known for rapidly amputating limbs. One case describes that he amputated a leg in just two and a half minutes, but in his haste took the patient's testicles as well. Alright, let's get to one of Liston's most famous, or should I say infamous, cases. The operation with a 300% mortality rate. Before beginning, one caveat. some sources question whether this truly occurred, but the story is out there, so let's cover it. while performing one of his rapid leg amputations, Liston accidentally amputated the fingers of his young assistant and slashed through the coattails of a distinguished surgical spectator. The patient would go on to die in the hospital due to hospital gangrene, which we now know is a type of bacterial infection, as did his assistant. Okay, that's two. The third was the spectator, who was so terrified that the knife had pierced his vitals, as one source put it, <gasps> that he dropped dead from fright. Likely a heart attack, but I'm speculating there. And there you have it. The only known operation with a 300% mortality rate. So, Listen was associated with this infamous case, but let's move to a more famous case and a far better and more important outcome. As you may recall from way back in episode 2, Ether was introduced to surgery on October 16th of 1846, well, it's more complicated than that, but go listen for some more detail. Anyways, that occurred in Boston, Massachusetts. Now, the first operation in Europe under ether was done by none other than Robert Liston. The date was December 21st, 1846, just two months after the Boston success, and the site was the University College Hospital in London, England. The patient's name was Frederick Churchill, a butler who had suffered from terrible symptoms in his right knee. Now, the most specific description I could find was that he had developed a discharging sinus in the leg due to a fall, leading to a staphylococcal osteomyelitis of the tibia, meaning a bacterial infection in the bone. With no other treatment available to bring relief, Churchill agreed to undergo a mid-thigh amputation as a last resort. The ether anesthesia was provided by William Squire, a medical student at the time. His uncle Peter Squire, a famous Oxford Street pharmacist, had been asked to build an inhaler for administrating ether. This consisted of a clear glass bell-shaped bottle with an outlet for a tube and became known as the Squire inhaler, and I'll post a picture on Twitter. The Squires actually first practiced the use of ether in their inhaler on a patient undergoing a dental extraction before the main event. On the day of the surgery, Squire arrived at 2 o'clock and carried a preliminary trial on a theater porter named Sheldrake. Unfortunately, he was a large burly man, and in this first public demonstration, Sheldrake did not sink into a deep anesthetic but rather leapt from the table and fled through the watching crowd, screaming oaths and threatening anyone who tried to restrain him. Good thing the actual patient hadn't arrived yet to see it. Next, Liston arrived, as did the patient, brought in by none other than Sheldrick. Now let me describe the next events in the words of an observer, Dr. F. William Cock. Quote, the well of the theater is now almost full. It is 2.15 p.m. A firm step is heard, and Robert Liston enters that magnificent figure of a man, six foot two inches in height, with a most commanding expression of countenance. He nods quietly to Squire, and, turning round to the packed crowd of onlookers, students, colleagues, old students, and many of the neighboring practitioners, says somewhat dryly, We're going to try a Yankee dodge today, gentlemen, for making men insensible. He then takes, from a long, narrow case, one of the straight amputating knives of his own invention. It is evidently a favorite instrument for on the handle are little notches showing the number of times he had used it before. His house surgeon, Ransom, puts the saw, two or three tenacula, and the artery forceps, named after the operator, onto a chair close by and covers them with a towel, then threads a wisp of well-waxed hemp ligatures through his own buttonhole. Ready, Mr. Ransom? Yes, sir. Then have him brought in. The patient is carried in on the stretcher and laid on the table. The tube is put into his mouth. William Squire holds it in the patient's nostrils. A couple of dressers stand by to hold the patient if necessary, but he never moves and blows and gurgles away quietly. Liston stands by, trying the edge of his knife against his thumbnail, and the tension increases. The patient's breathing gets deeper. More ether is dropped on the sponge. William Squire looks at Liston and says, I think he'll do, sir. The tube is removed and a handkerchief laid over the patient's face. Take the artery, Mr. Cadge," cries Liston. Ransom, the house surgeon, holds the limb. Now, gentlemen, tie me, he says to the students. A score of watches are pulled out in reply. The huge left hand grasps the thigh. A thrust of the long straight knife, two or three rapid sawing movements, and the upper flap is made. Undergo his fingers, and the flap is held back. Another thrust, and the point of the knife comes out in the angle of the upper flap. Two or three more lightning-quick movements, and the lower flap is cut. Undergoes the great thumb and holds it back also. A touch or two of the point, and the dresser, holding the saw by its end, yields it to the surgeon and takes the knife in return. Half a dozen strokes, and Ransom places the limb in the sawdust. 28 seconds, says William Squire. 27, says Buckle, a student still living. 26 echoes yellow-haired Russell Reynolds. Twenty-five seconds, sir,' says proud Edward Palmer, the dresser, to his surgeon, who smiles in reply. "'The femoral artery is taken upon a tenaculum "'and tied with two stout ligatures "'and five or six more vessels "'with the bow forceps and single thread, "'a strip of wet linen put between the flaps "'and the stump raised. "'Then the handkerchief is removed from the patient's face "'and trying to raise himself, he says, "'When are you going to begin?' Take me back, I can't have it done. He is shown the elevated stump, drops back and weeps a little. Then the porters come in and he is taken back to bed. Five minutes have elapsed since he left it. As he goes out, Liston turns again to his audience, so excited that he almost stammers and hesitates and exclaims, This Yankee Dodge gentlemen, beats mesmerism hollow. End quote. As a note of explanation, that comment was partly a dig at Dr. Elliotson, a senior physician at the hospital who was interested in mesmerism as a form of anesthesia, and not surprisingly, a person with whom our Dr. Liston quarreled with frequently. We'll come back to that in a minute, as there is some strange history there. But first, a few more notes about that history-making surgery using ether. In the People's Journal of London, the event was covered with great wonder and excitement. Quote, Oh, what delight! For every feeling heart to find the new year ushered in with the announcement of this noble discovery of the power to still the sense of pain and veil the eye and memory from all the horrors of an operation, we have conquered pain, End quote. Interestingly, two observers present on that day would later have a significant impact on the history of surgery. One was James Simpson, just 16 years old at the time, who would go on to become the first to use chloroform as an anesthetic, see podcast 13, most famously on Queen Victoria, And the second observer was none other than Joseph Lister, who of course would lead surgery into the world of antisepsis, making surgery dramatically safer by reducing infections. All right, let's go back and explore this concept of mesmerism as an anesthetic option. Mesmerism is actually named for the German doctor Franz Anton Mesmer, who lived from 1734 to 1815. In the 18th century, Dr. Mesmer described what he believed was an invisible natural force possessed by all living, animate beings, which included humans, animals, and even plants. He believed that this force, which he called animal magnetism, could have physical effects, including healing. He discovered that with repetitive hand movements and strong vocal suggestion, he could induce a sleep like state in patients in which they would follow his commands and become insensitive to pain. This altered state was termed hypnosis in 1820, from the Greek hypnos, meaning sleep. So, John Eliotson, mentioned earlier, was a senior physician at St. Thomas Hospital in London. By 1831, he was appointed professor of medicine at the new University College London and senior physician at the University College Hospital. However, he enlisted bang heads frequently. Here's a quote from one of their colleagues. Quote, At this time, there were two parties in the medical staff of the university, one might be said to be headed by elliotson the other by liston a strong personal dislike had long existed between these two remarkable men and each of them lost no opportunity of annoying the other the scenes in the medical committee room of the hospital were often of a very exciting character remarks of a very offensive kind were frequently made elliot began to be interested in mesmerism in the late 1820s and in 1829 invited an irishman named chenevix who had been practicing mesmerism in paris to come to St. Thomas Hospital and demonstrate this on patients. While not completely convinced, by the summer of 1837, a French disciple of mesmerism named Baron Jules Dupotet arrived in London. Eliotson invited him to the UCH to demonstrate this technique. The results, according to Eliotson's reports in The Lancet, were dramatic and word quickly spread. However, by December of 1838, mesmerism was forbidden from the hospital partly due to discrediting articles in The Lancet by its founder, Thomas Wakely, and Eliotson resigned. But he continued his experiments and demonstrations, becoming the leader of the mesmerists, and in 1843 founded The Zoist, literally The Lifeist, described as a journal of cerebral physiology and mesmerism and their application to human welfare. Other surgeons known to have used hypnoanesthesia for surgery, in addition to Eliotson, include Jules Cloquette, a French surgeon who performed a mastectomy under this on April 12, 1829, an English surgeon named Ward who performed a leg amputation in 1842, numerous reports from the U.S., and the Scottish physician James Esdale, who used hypnoanesthesia in approximately 300 surgical patients in India between 1845 and 1851, many of which were done in the Calcutta Mesmeric Hospital. And what I found amazing was that a number of clinics and hospitals started up around Europe to provide this type of care, including the London Mesmeric Infirmary, which was founded by Eliotson and opened in March of 1850. As far as anyone can tell, it seemed to have faded from existence by 1869. And of course, with the advent of chemical anesthesia around this time, hypnosis in general fell out of favor. All right, let's get back to Liston. While not a great public speaker or writer, his reputation came from his depth of knowledge and teaching abilities. Liston did publish a number of papers and wrote the textbooks Elements of Surgery and Practical Surgery, the latter published in 1837. Within these texts, Liston laid out what he considered to be the most important elements in the practice of surgery, many of which are relevant today. Quote, many poor creatures have been sacrificed in consequence of the ignorance, carelessness, and self-sufficiency even of scientific professors, who have either despised or neglected the study of surgical anatomy, the consideration of the casualties which may arise during the various operations, and the due education of their fingers, end quote. He considered the infliction of unnecessary pain, prolonging the operative procedure and risking the safety of the patient through the lack of adroitness in the use of instruments to be highly criminal. Listen also commented on the importance of attending to a patient's emotional state. Quote, it is of utmost importance to attend to the state of the patient's mind and feelings. He ought not to be kept in suspense, but encouraged and assured, and his apprehensions must be allayed, end quote. Finally, Listen recognized that post operative care was an often overlooked aspect of practice, saying, quote, Attention to the after treatment is of much greater importance meaning than the operation itself. The practitioner is not to rely on success, however well the manual part has proceeded. He must consider his labor only begun when the operation is finished. The patient is yet to be conducted by kindness and judgment through the process of cure, end quote. Liston was also a surgical innovator, so let's cover a few of his creations. Earlier in the description of one of his operations, a so-called bulldog forceps, or a type of locking artery forceps, was mentioned. He also developed his own amputation knife, which was sharpened on both sides to speed up the procedure. A weird historical side note, apparently Jack the Ripper, who many suspect may have had some anatomical and even surgical training, used the Liston amputation knife as his weapon of choice. In addition to describing the clinical presentation of a fracture of the neck of the femur, Liston advocated a treatment with a long leg splint, where formerly no treatment was given. This Liston long splint was the first to address potential limb shortening caused by the fracture and was the standard of care until the hip splint became popular after World War I. Finally, he was critical of the wound dressings used at the time, saying, quote, The hot dressings, filthy unguents, greasy poultices, stimulating plasters, and complicated bandages must give place very soon, whereas yet they have not done so, to the elegant substitute for a poultice, to the unirritating isinglass plaster, and a careful position of the injured part. End quote. Now, Here's a strange fact for you Isinglass is a substance that comes from the dried swim bladders of fish. It's a type of collagen and has been used for clarification or fining of some beer and wine, meaning it helps to settle particles in the liquid. So, vegans and vegetarians beware, not all alcoholic beverages are okay. And When cooked, it can be made into a paste for specialized gluing purposes, such as the plaster used by Liston. The name comes from a Dutch word, heisenblas. Huizen is a type of sturgeon, and blas means bladder, although cod bladders took over as the main source. Robert Liston died on December 7th, 1847 in the house of Sir William Bowman, the man who first described the glomerular capsule of the kidney, which we now call Bowman's capsule, who was also a distinguished ophthalmologist and friend of Lawrence Nightingale. I've read a few different accounts as to the cause of death, but the prevailing theory seems to be that he developed an aortic aneurysm after blunt trauma, specifically being hit in the chest by the boom of his yacht. This then ruptured into his trachea, which would certainly lead to a rapid death. Liston was only 53 years old. The funeral service was held at Highgate Parish Church and attended by 500 students, friends, and pupils. The University College Hospital awarded the Liston Medal in his honor for surgical excellence for nearly 100 years after his death. Although famously gruff and demanding, Liston should be remembered also as a surgeon devoted to his patients, and who understood the importance of a thorough knowledge of anatomy and pathology. He also championed the importance of experience and accuracy in diagnosis, and in an era where surgery caused terrible pain and suffering, he knew that proceeding without hesitation, and with confidence and deafness in surgical technique, was a mercy. That wraps up another episode of Legends of Surgery. I hope you enjoyed it. The next time we'll cover Sir Percival Pott, the 18th century English surgeon often credited as one of the founders of orthopedics. But did you also know that he was the first scientist to demonstrate that a cancer may be caused by an environmental or occupational exposure? I won't say more, but I'll give you this hint. In the meantime, please rate the podcast on iTunes, or wherever you download episodes and leave a comment there, or follow me on Twitter at Surgery Legends, like us on Facebook at Legends of Surgery, or send an email to legendsofsurgery at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you about your thoughts on the podcast or ideas for future episodes. As always, thanks for listening.